0: This is an Odyssey Original.
1: This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
2: I'm
3: Charles Feldman. Now, picture this. You're sitting at the table for your Thanksgiving dinner. You have your plate and are ready to dig in and stuff yourself. But there's nothing to dig into. And even worse, depending on your family, there are no guests. All their flights cancel and... Your local friends do not want to join you for an outing because they are nervous about a terror attack at a crowded place. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Sounds like a great time. Doesn't it? (laughs) We'll go in-depth into Thanksgiving supply chain issues, airline staffing shortages, and a warning about terrorism.
1: California's top public health officials now saying any adult who wants a covid booster shot shouldn't be denied one. But the boosters, they aren't approved for everyone older than 18. So what do you do? New survey finds many parents in the state are worried their kids are going to be worse off than they are. And if your boss bugs you too much after hours and on the weekends, move to Portugal because it is illegal to do that there. I've just bought my plane ticket. (laughs) Here we go.
3: (laughs) See you there on Monday. Let's start with Thanksgiving food and the supply chain. Phil Lampert is a retail analyst who runs SupermarketGuru.com. Phil, thanks for being with us. So how bad is it going to be in terms of getting the normal ingredients for Thanksgiving and how costly is it going to be?
4: Well, to be honest with you, it depends. It depends if you want a small turkey, 12 pounds or under, and if it's fresh, it's going to be really hard to get and really expensive if you can find one. If you want a big bird. Um, but, you know, as you pointed out, there's not going to be a lot of people sitting around that Thanksgiving do, uh, table this year. Um, you know, 25 pounds frozen, um, those will be plentiful. That you will have no problem with. As far as all the other side dishes, uh, those prices are going up as well. Uh, there's no question about it. You mentioned the supply chain, and, and there's three major factors that we have to look at. One, One is climate change, Um, and the fires that we had in the Northwest destroyed a lot of corn and soy crops. What that meant is... The, the feed for the animals Whether it be a turkey Or whether it be a hog Or beef um, That goes up And those animals are eating 24-7 They're, they're not like us Eating three meals a day um, Also we've reopened trade with China So the Chinese farmers Are paying more for soy And corn for, Feed for their animals Which forces the U.S. farmers to compete So we've got that problem We also have a transportation problem um not just uh, with boats at LA harbor uh but frankly truckers uh we're down about 70,000 truckers um in the in the US and then this past monday 74,000 it was reported basically since january of 2020 failed their drug tests and they're not able to drive. And about fifty five thousand of those have left the industry. So you take the sixty, seventy thousand shortages of trucks now and then you add another fifty on top of that, we have a big problem and the American Trucking Association reports that we're gonna need about a million more truck drivers over the next decade. And then you've got the labor shortage. And we're
3: I I, I, Why is there more? I, I need an but I, <laughs> is there a shortage of antidepressants? <laughs> Cuz I think I'm going to need one.
4: <laughs> well, we we are and, and the problem is that this is going to last For the next 12 to 18 months It is not just This season um, You know, we saw the consumer price index For beef rose 3.1% In October um, That is huge um, The index for food at home Rose 1.2% In October, we're seeing the highest Monthly increases that we've Seen in decades And it's just going to get worse for for those two reasons and also the labor shortage in factories.
1: All right. Circle me back to the birds. What should people do if they want to get the turkey that they want and not just like, oh, I managed to get a turkey and we'll, we'll figure it out?
4: Well, the thing to do right now is either shop right now for one or order a meal box. Um, A lot of the meal kit companies have put together Thanksgiving Day meals uh, with all the side dishes. It ranges from, you know, $7 a person to, I think, Martha Stewart's box (laughs) is like $250. um, And that has a 12-pound turkey as as part of it. Um, And also, look around. Uh, Shop any place that has food. Dollar stores are great places. Grocery Outlet is a terrific place. Um, outlet for us um, just you know you're going to have to shop around if you want to get what you want this thanksgiving and not have to settle for you know a plate of shrimp
3: <laughs> how are sparrows for
4: thanksgiving uh not enough meat <laughs> you know um, <laughs> if, if, if you want to go a little bit more expensive go, go for quail and they have a little bit more quail fatten. oh a quail. quail huh i hadn't thought of it's
1: that has got a an quail. answer for everything phil yeah. Lemford's retail analyst runs uh, supermarketguru.com. phil thanks I've never had quail. Have you? No, I don't think so.
3: Huh. when do what quail... T- well, everything tastes like chicken. Exactly. Right? So what does quail taste yes, like? If you do it chicken. right, it
1: tastes like chicken. Yes.
3: <laughs> All right. So, uh, well, if that didn't depress you an airline... <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep going. <laughs> we're going to keep going. An airline staffing shortage could leave your Thanksgiving table... Uh, well, we're saying empty, but it sounds like it's going to be empty anyway, but it could leave your house empty because no one's going to be there.
1: The state health officials encouraging COVID vaccine providers give every adult a booster shot if they ask. And Portugal says bosses can't contact employees after work. We'll look into what the rules are uh, here as far as how bosses can go.
3: And we'll tell you what the job opportunities in Portugal, Portugal. are. <laughs> yes,
1: we're, we're checking Glassdoor right now. And whatever it is.
3: Right now, uh, airlines are, ha- are having staffing problems. Uh, no laughing matter. The travel industry is bouncing back faster than anticipated, and airlines are having trouble keeping up with the Thanksgiving travel rush coming up. Here's the question. Will airlines be able to handle it all? Henry Hartfelt is a travel industry analyst with the Atmosphere Research Group. Henry, thanks for being with us. So, uh lots of people planning to board airplanes to take them to who knows where for Thanksgiving. Are they going to make it?
0: Yes, they'll make it, uh but... I got to tell you, we all are going to have to allow a lot more time to get to and through the airport. Um, It's not just the airlines we have to worry about. It's the TSA as well.
1: Are they the airlines ready? We've had issues with American. We've had issues with Southwest. We've had, you you know, the drill. So have they been trying to staff up or iron things out? And I guess it just depends. You can get some big storm someplace and it's going to throw everything out of whack.
0: Right. Yeah. So let's let's hold weather aside, because that's always a risk, especially at Thanksgiving. Um, uh, What I would say is American Airlines and Southwest, which have had some very highly publicized incidents recently, uh, have been adding pilots, flight attendants and other workers. American brought back eighteen hundred furloughed flight attendants November 1st. They will have more coming online back to duty uh, in December. Um, They are also getting their pilots back on duty. Same over at Southwest. Uh, uh, And importantly, the federal mandate for contracted companies, uh, which all major airlines are, got pushed back to January 4th. So that kicks the can down the road uh, in terms of Thanksgiving travel. I was worried about American and Southwest uh, pilots, which had a large number who were not vaccinated, Fortunately, that's not an issue we have to worry about right now.
3: Okay, so when you say people need to plan on more time to get through the airport, say LAX, so if you're planning to fly uh, the day before Thanksgiving, do you go to the airport like tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I <love it>.
0: You <laughs> know, I, I would tell you this, uh, uh, as someone who will be traveling the Monday before Thanksgiving, which is when the uh, TSA's ma- mandate goes into effect, I'm really worried that the TSA may potentially have as many as 40% fewer people working uh, that day. Um, uh, so I would say give yourself at an airport like LAX at least 30 minutes uh, more time. And if you can give yourself more time, please do. It's better to sit on the other side in security thinking, God, this is boring, than be stressing and you know possibly missing your flight.
1: The usual rules apply right earlier in the day rather than later nonstop rather than stops just to make it as safe as possible in case things do start getting canceled.
0: Yes, absolutely. And the other thing is, if you have not yet booked your flight uh, where you're going before you book the airline, you know best. Take a look to see if other airlines uh, have more flights to your destination, use a tool like Hopper or Google Flights or Kayak or something like that. The reason I say that is with airlines having made so many adjustments to their schedules uh, over the past year and a half, year and three quarters, uh, the airline that may have had the most flights to the destination you normally go to, may not. New airlines may have started to add flights. And LAX is so competitive. Airlines are adding and dropping flights at LAX, Burbank, Orange County, Ontario, and the other uh, airports in the region.
3: All right. So let's say, for the sake of argument, we all make it through Thanksgiving. uh, And now the next big date is people traveling for Christmas, right? Uh,
0: right? How is that looking now? Well, that gets me a little bit more concerned because Uh, uh, If the January 4th deadline sticks for uh, uh, federal contractors having to have all employees vaccinated, that means that two weeks before that, which is right before Christmas, is when all the airline employees have to finish their vaccination routines. Um, If they don't, that's where we could see some problems, possibly with American and Southwest.
1: Henry Hartveldt, travel industry analyst, the Atmosphere Research Group. Thanks.
3: Well, if we haven't ruined your holidays yet, we are not done <laughs> by any means. <laughs> we measure. are undeterred. No, no we no, no, will no. keep trying. We're plowing ahead because coming up next, there is and it's everything else shortage of turkeys, shortage of airlines, no shortage of a terror warning before the holidays.
1: Yeah, the Homeland Security Department issuing a warning in a new terrorism bulletin saying there's a diverse, challenging threat environment ahead of the holidays. Threats not just from foreign-based groups, but domestic, too. With us, Ryan Brown, senior behavioral social scientist at the RAND Corporation, focuses on the causes of domestic extremism. I would imagine, though, that every time around the holidays, uh, people start to keep their head on a swivel, especially in you know this kind of a security realm, because this is like a prime target time.
5: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. We've seen terrorism target crowded places, target uh, events with high symbolic significance um, like Christmas and other holidays uh, around the winter season. So uh, there is that. But I think there's a particularly heightened threat environment right now because of, frankly, the impact of of COVID-19 and the the lockdowns, what they've done to the emotional state of the not only average American, the average citizen worldwide made them more vulnerable potentially to radicalization. So there is definitely an an added threat layer that we should all uh, be paying attention to right now.
3: So is is most of the concern on uh, the threat of of foreign attack on American soil, a foreign attack on American interests overseas or domestic uh, terrorism here or all three?
5: I think. I mean, if you look at the uh, the advisory from DHS, it does mention both. I think the you know the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the potential for terrorist groups to regroup, and uh, retrain and reconstitute their uh, their capabilities there is it adds to the foreign threat profile. Um, but we've seen an increasing ability over the last decade of foreign actors to infiltrate uh, the U.S. to recruit. Um, U.S. citizens to their cause. And this includes countries like Russia and China amping up uh, and amplifying some of the internal divisions that could cause domestic domestic extremism, violent extremism uh, attacks to take place on our own soil. So there, it really is a, a very diverse, um, hard to detect threat profile with some lone wolf actors and some potentially more organized attacks.
1: Yeah, when you talked about people being more susceptible now because of what's happened over the pandemic, take, take us through some of that. Is it people get more mentally unstable because they've had such a tough times? Is it people have more time to to fall into these, quote, causes? What is it?
5: It's, it's kind of a mix of all of those things. Um, what we've seen in some of the emerging reporting of the impact of COVID-19 on, let's say, online chatter, extremism chatter, we are seeing a pretty clear demarcation with the stay-at-home orders. And um, whether it's you know lack of uh, things to do or frustration and dehumanization of, uh, of frankly our, our neighbors down the street um, and others in the US, because we have, have had fewer chances over the last year or two to just have normal social interactions, extremism, or in some case riots have been the only occasions in which individuals can, can get together face to face. And so, whether you're experiencing kind of sense of camaraderie online, in an extremist forum, or um, occasionally engaging in attacks or street fights, those have been some of the only outlets or the most attractive outlets during these lockdowns. So it's really, it really is a combination of things. And then the COVID-19 pandemic itself, division over government response, lockdowns, and concerns over vaccines, those have been sources of internal division, but foreign actors i used it as well to try to uh, drive wedges between us.
1: Ryan Brown, senior, senior behavioral and social scientist at the RAND Corporation, focuses on the causes of domestic extremism. Ryan, thanks.
3: This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: The state health officials now telling COVID vaccine providers, give those booster shots to just about any adult who says they want one. This is different from what the CDC is recommending, different from what you've heard. It says those 65 and older, in poor health, those who live and work in high-risk settings, those are the people who should get the boosters.
3: So could this new guidance lead to some confusion, problems? With us again is Dr. Jeffrey Luther. He is a member of the California Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors and a member of the California... California COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Committee. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for
2: having me back.
3: So, uh, as we've always understood it, uh, various states don't have to adhere to what the CDC recommends, but they, in general, they do. But I also understand from a legal point of view that there could be issues, that if somebody, let's say a place gives you a shot, a booster, for example, before uh, the FDA and the CDC both sort of authorize it or recommend it, does that not leave the provider open to potential liability?
2: Um, If it were in conflict with the FDA's policy, so if the FDA gave authorization for use in a certain age group, if if we gave the um, vaccine to someone that hadn't been formally authorized, uh, and that could set someone up for liability, if it's been authorized for an age group, like the, the current mRNA vaccines are authorized down to 18, the Pfizer down to five. Um, they, that authorization from the um, FDA doesn't take into account other qualifying factors. They just say it's fine for this age. So really once it's a, uh, authorized at that age, anybody could receive it. Um, and I would not be concerned about the liability
1: aspect okay what's your view on what you know the, the state officials are saying is dr galley got up there yesterday and said look number one if you want to go get one hey go get one number two uh, providers if somebody wants one don't turn them away which kind of leads us to this idea where you know you can kind of use the latter category as the catch-all which is if you feel like you work in a high risk setting okay man I got uh, 10 people in my office oh man that's 10 more people than some people see working at home so I'm high risk let me go get a shot which can be like like basically everybody.
2: I think that's true. And also the people who are considered to be at higher risk because of their health conditions is also a huge category. The the CDC really expanded its list of high-risk conditions such that now it includes, for instance, people who are considered overweight. Um, That means if you have a BMI over 25, um, you qualify based on that. And sadly, the overwhelming majority of our population has a BMI over 25. So that's another um, grab bag, if you will, where almost everyone is already qualified um, to get the vaccine. So I think this message from our state officials is an interesting message to get more people, hopefully all people thinking about, hey, maybe I could or should get the uh, booster. It doesn't really change that much who could get it because most people already could. I think it's messaging more than anything.
3: Well, and talking about messaging, we, we've we had a number of people on the show in the past few days, and, and that's exactly what we talked about, that maybe it's time to just stop calling these things boosters, which which confuses people <laughs> all over the place, and just say, you know, these are the, the two vaccine ones are really three, uh, and the one vaccine one, the Johnson Johnson one, is really two, and then maybe that'll make it easier for people to just get these.
2: It might, although, you know, we have a history of vaccines needing boosters that goes back decades and decades. So the the booster idea is not new. It's just that this vaccine is new. And I think what's also confusing is for the immunocompromised, the first people to get authorized to get the third dose of the the Pfizer or the Moderna, um, that they distinctly did not call that a booster. They called it a third shot. And I think that gets a little confusing, the semantics. Um, And I honestly don't care what people call it as long as they recognize its value and they
1: get it. So are you in the same camp as as what we've heard from the state? I mean, let's say there's like a healthy 40-year-old listening and they just feel like, you know what? I'd either, A, like my antibodies back or B, I'm not really super thrilled about getting a breakthrough case, even if it's mild. Or, hey, I don't want to expose older people or whatever it is. Uh, I think I'll go get one of these. Is that is that fine?
2: You know, I think we have to bear in mind that nine, ten months ago, when we were going through all these really complicated algorithms for who would get qualified for the vaccine when, it was in the face of having a really limited supply and not knowing when we were going to get more and trying to strategize, you know, who needs it the most the soonest. Now, certainly you could say the elderly Probably it's the most important for them to get the booster because their immune system is not as robust and it's been longer since they've been immunized. But really, we seem to have ample supply and a better delivery system. So it's not like we have to ration it necessarily. I think, you know, I certainly have healthy patients who have gone to pharmacies and self-attested that they qualified and got their vaccine because they wanted one. And I'm a rule follower, so I don't like to encourage that, but I get where they're coming from. So as long as there's vaccine supply, I don't have a problem
1: with it. Dr. Jeffrey Luther, member of the California COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Committee and the California Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors.
3: The Public Policy Institute of California releasing results of a survey asking Californians about their opinions on the state's economic outlook. Seven in ten, seven in ten, say the gap between rich and poor is getting
1: larger. The majority of residents believe children growing up today are going to be worse off than the previous generation. Don Shelby, parents and CEO of San Joaquin A Plus Family Community Group, dedicated to helping kids achieve educational goals. So, Don, uh, what do you think about some of the findings in this? Because people are saying we're not in the greatest spot here.
6: Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I would agree the uh, the sentiment in San Joaquin County and the Valley is uh, is very similar. Parents and the community members want a big change in the education system, and are feeling pretty, um, pretty negative about the ability to educate kids for the workforce and a uh, and, and meaningful careers.
3: We mentioned you're a parent. Uh, how many? Uh, I have two. Age group? Uh, these these youngsters are older and have a couple of grandchildren. Okay. In school right now uh, but are you are, are they young enough still that you worry about their futures and what are you worried about in particular
6: uh, I I am uh, I'm I'm worried about the the fact that our youngsters are staying in the area they uh, the needs in the area are health careers, education, ag and logistics. And the need to prepare them um, to meet these workforce needs uh, is is less than I think I would like or any other parent would like. Do
1: you think this is something that most parents are noticing? Because we were tossing this around in the newsroom earlier, and it it used to be, you know, in the, at least in the 80s and 90s, like most parents in the uh, in their 30s and going on their 40s, they, all, they had houses and they were having kids. And now most of the 20 to 30-year-old set is still in the apartment trying to make rent.
6: So uh, let, let me just offer a very specific uh, set of examples to that. So we, we did a survey in San Joaquin County, and nearly two-thirds of those we surveyed rate the ability of local schools to prepare young people for starting a career negatively. So when, when, we, when we look at that overall, in terms of all voters, uh, 63% negative, It's 67 percent negative when we look at 18 through 34 year olds and 73 percent of parents of school age children are negative about the future and the degree to which their current school system can prepare them for jobs.
3: Is this something this concern, this fear, um, angst? Is this specific, do you think, to people who live in California or is this something that's nationwide, do you think?
6: You know, I do think it's more of a of a national view. I just returned uh, uh, from Denver yesterday um, talking to individuals from everywhere from uh, Idaho to New Jersey to Clark County, Nevada. And the feeling is pretty much the same. Some of these locations have survey data. Others, you know, are are have more, you know, anecdotal work. But uh, no, the feeling is national.
1: We always get hit here for everything costing so much, especially housing, like we mentioned before. But is the other side that maybe if the other places are feeling it, too, that, you know, you can, you can get a job, but it's not a good paying job?
6: Yeah. Yeah. We look here in here in San Joaquin County, we have uh, we have uh, salaries that are at the 75th percentile, similar to California and have dropped to 69th. Since the pandemic and going down so the so so the worry about uh, having a job that can that that can provide a family sustaining income is uh, is growing at least in the central valley. When you talk
3: about doing things differently educationally schools, what would you do?
6: Yeah so I, so I think I think there are I think there are a couple of things. The biggest innovation we see, is this notion of early college high schools, where you begin to blur the lines between high school, uh, community college, and the workforce. So when you start thinking about this now, you can put youngsters on a uh, in an early college high school program that's preparing them for the ag industry or the healthcare industry. They can have a paid internship while still in high school, and graduate with, uh, with the equivalent of a year or in many cases, two years of college credit in AA or an AS, saving themselves and their parents meaningful dollars in terms of tuition. And they'll have a certification that has earning power in the marketplace, whether it's a phlebotomist, whether it's a vet tech in the ag industry, or power professional training in education. So it's, it's no longer the normal sequence. We think it's, it's what I would call a big blur between work, post-secondary and high school.
1: So you mentioned the kids. They're probably doing all right because they have the grandkids or you have the grandkids. Um, so how much do you worry about them, the really young ones? And, and are you hoping they get on that kind of a track that you just mentioned or what's, what's your hopes and dreams or your fears for them as they, they go up and it's been another, you know, 10, 20 years and, and now they're in the job market.
6: Yeah. I, I, uh, I really. I really do worry about it, Charles and Mike and and the and the young kids we see now um, y- you know there's there's just there's just so much fear of the unknown coming out of this pandemic. I think there will be calls for uh, for hybrid instruction that uh, that was unheard of prior to the pandemic. I think this I think this worry about a well-prepared uh, teacher force, we see more uh, educators leaving the profession than coming in right now. The 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 needs for highly qualified educators throughout the country, particularly in California, and particularly in uh, more rural parts of California like the Central Valley, are are growing. We we know qualified teachers are the are the best instructional material anyone can have. So we have to make this profession more appealing more noble more dignified
1: don shelby parents and ceo of san joaquin a plus
3: this is knx in depth
1: with mike simpson i'm charles feldman so over in uh, europe they've got uh, free health care they've got lenient parental leave policies so maybe that has you considering a change of scenery now we got something else Portugal approving a law making it illegal for employers to contact workers outside of business hours.
3: Yeah, I, I'm looking. There's actually a, a convenient flight tonight from LAX <laughs> yes. to uh, to Portugal. So, <laughs> uh, Those who violate the rules that Mike just mentioned will have to pay penalty fees. So here to clarify California's legal boundaries and workplace discussions outside of the office is brad kane he's an employment attorney with the kane law firm in la brad thanks for being with us
7: you're very welcome thank you
3: so uh portugal which is now sounding pretty much like paradise uh what's the law here
7: well in california you can actually be terminated by your employer if you don't respond no matter what time of day Day, night, if it's an emergency or they're just in the mood to text you at, at 2 a.m. and you don't respond, you can be fired in California for any reason or no reason. There is no right to work from home except a very narrow one, which is let's say your doctor certifies you have a disability and it's at a reasonable accommodation that doesn't unduly burden the business for you to work at home. So we live in a different universe. It's amazing in Portugal. That up to the if you have children up to the age of eight, you have a right to work from home. Here in California and the rest of the US, it's a privilege that the employer can grant or not grant at their whim.
1: So we have arrived at a place where we have found the complete opposite scenario. <laughs> Us and them. Um...
7: Right. But I'll give you a little bright news in this. California is ahead of Portugal in a couple respects. So because we're probably the most employee-friendly state in the nation. Whereas in Portugal, if you're working from home and it increases your costs, let's say you have to pay more for your Internet, you use more electricity, uh, then they'll make the employer reimburse you the extra. Here in California, if I'm using my cell phone or, you know, for example, what I do with my employees, which is with law, I pay a percentage of their phone bill and a percentage of their Internet. And that's what Californians are, are require, California employees are required to do for their employees. And if they don't, they can get sued. So that there's a big difference there. But I'll, I'll tell you one other thing with this California versus Portugal. At least in California, if you get that text at 2 a.m., you get to charge your employer for it. There's no such thing as under the federal law, the de minimis rule, where, oh, it's just a few seconds, it's a minute, doesn't count. At least in California, we make the employers pay for waking you up.
3: Well, how much do they have to pay? I mean, if they send an email and you return it and it takes like a minute and a half to do that. Instead of just saying, I didn't see it. Yeah, I was uh, asleep.
1: Right. Well,
7: OK, <laughs> What do they? Well, <laughs> let me give you a scenario that happens sometimes in my work. That minute and a half is like, OK, what, maybe 50 cents out of your hourly rate, uh, depending on how much you're getting paid. But let's say six months later, you get fired and they never figured that. Minute and a half phone call in. Well, now you could get waiting time penalties because they didn't pay you up to 30 days pay for each day late. They are paying you out. So California has some hammers that help employees when the employer is not watching.
1: The the Portugal scenario, this like right to disconnect, I think France has also been doing things like this. Is this growing in other parts of the world or is it just like those? Oh, no, no.
7: It's definitely on the rise. In Germany, they have a law that you cannot text your employees and in fact a lot of them are installing software. So to make it kind of idiot proof, if the managers are sending out texts late at night or email, they don't go out until the morning. And the technology is already there. I set, you know, late night emails to go out at eight AM so people think I'm up early.
3: <laughs> That's very good. So so why are we so behind the curve in that? I mean, we're behind the curve in health care in terms of, of uh, uh, you know, medicine and, and how much people get, you know, bankrupt by their medical care. But why are we so behind the curve in that, too, in, in terms of these laws about texting and emails and interrupting people 24-7? Um, OK,
7: well, I'll give you my opinion, my opinion, a cup of coffee. I'll get you a cup of coffee but it's the concentration of wealth and power on one side. There is that, you know, top one-tenth of 1% that owns about 50% of the wealth in this country, and everybody else is sort of disorganized. So they tend to skew the discussion because they donate to a lot of politicians on the left and on the right. And so the issue of, like, universal health care never really gets an up or down vote because 80% of the public wants that, But there are very few politicians that make it into office that push that. The other thing that Europe has that we don't is they have very strong labor unions here. The labor unions are very weak. They maybe represent 10 percent of the workforce. And those countries are probably 50 percent. And so the workers are much more organized right now. I got to tell you, I'm watching possibly this is dating myself. But in the 1980s, I watched as. Major manufacturers started employing two-tier wage structures, meaning the the new hires get a lower wage than the people already hired, mm-hmm. and it's the first time in my lifetime I'm seeing strikes with an actual chance of reversing that. Like John Deere right now, because of the supply chain story. workers have the upper hand for the moment, and it's happening at other places. So, the pandemic may be having incidentally and accidentally being balancing this out. I think we're going to make some real progress. This year, um, we're going to wait and see. And if, if they don't do it on their own, then it's going to be up to people like you and I to advocate.
1: Brad Kane, employment attorney with Kane Law Firm in L.A.
3: So, Mike, I think there's like a 7.15 flight out of L.A. <laughs> Still to, going. to, to yeah. Lisbon. And we could be there. It's an 11 and a half hour flight. I look.
1: It's beautiful.
3: Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we could be there on time for dinner tomorrow. And <laughs> and then
1: when the boss says, where are you?
3: Uh, we're in Portugal. Oh, oh, no,
1: we don't have to respond.
3: No, because they can't text
1: us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there. Gen Z, very politically engaged, a young people, excluding their social justice work or other groups they belong to from their resumes.
3: Now, legally, employers are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of political beliefs. Revealing this information, though, can expose applicants to risks. Julie Bauke is the president and chief uh, career strategist at the Bauke Group, a firm that helps people make career transitions to land their dream jobs. Thanks for being with us, Julie. Thanks. So, first of all, uh, how does one, especially somebody starting out in the job market uh, and perhaps has all kinds of stuff on about their beliefs or their causes on Instagram and Twitter and uh, WhatsApp and you name it, how do you do you end up scrubbing that if you want to?
8: So, yeah, so that what these what these people are doing is they're scrubbing it from their resume. However, you make a great point. Most organizations these days are looking at your social media history. They're, they're seeing what you've posted. You know, if you've posted anything that's going to put them in a bad light or, that frankly, that shows poor judgment. And so if I were Gen Z, I'd be more concerned about my social media presence than I would my resume. But let's talk about a resume. So the, the point of a resume is to tell your story as it relates to the type of job or career you're pursuing. It isn't a document that must include everything you've ever done. It's a marketing document. And so taking certain things off of your resume can be really smart. And I would, whether I'm talking to someone who's Gen Z or a boomer, whether it's 20 years ago or today, when we work with clients, the goal is to figure out what type of job or career are you looking for? And then given that, how do you back up and what do you decide to put on your resume? So things like politics, religion, those sort of things have always been questionable to put on a resume. But these days, it's even more so. It's become much more of a hot button than it was, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you can have different volunteer groups or you can say, I spent the summer doing this or especially if you're one of these Gen Zers and you're you're fresh out of college. You know, I helped register voters here or I did this and maybe they want to put it on. Right. Because they're proud of it or it shows what they've been doing with their time. But to your point, they don't know that whoever's going to look at that is necessarily going to be in the same kind of political realm or ascribe to any of those beliefs or just read too much into it.
8: Right. So. It's, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. And before that, I was in human resources for, you know, 10, 15 years. And there is a ton of bias in hiring because it's human beings making decisions about other human beings. And so you're never going to eliminate bias. But one of the things that we see over and over again is what we call similarity bias, which means maybe you went to the same college I did. Or, you know, you have some of the same interests I do. And we immediately, there becomes like a halo effect when we're interviewing somebody who we think, who we see thinks or believes like we do, or maybe even just has the same hobbies and activities. Wow, what a good guy. No, so we have always been subject to that, all of us who've been interviewed. The problem is you'll never know because those decisions are made either, you know, consciously or subconsciously and all you know is you didn't get the interview or you didn't get the job. And so it's always hard to pinpoint why. And, you know, it, it, in the past, I give be anything from gender, race, age, uh, nationality, religion, any of those things. And so up until now, and including now, even more so now, those are the kind of things you don't put on a resume. So they're not they're not. They're actually being smart to an extent.
3: All right, but but here's a what I can see as a potential issue uh, because you have the resume and then, of course, uh, you do have this sort of social media uh, history. So what happens if somebody uh, scrubs stuff from their resume that they're, I don't know, social activist uh, types and it's not in the resume, but then the employer does their, what they consider to be due diligence, and they find a whole bunch of stuff on that person's social media. Does that not then put that person in the light of maybe they're trying to conceal things and and right away you're off to a bad start.
8: Not necessarily. You know, um, a resume isn't necessarily requ- required to or expected to include every single aspect of your life and your personality. So, it's it's if someone let's let's say I had a client who you know put together a resume like this and they left some of those things off yet it was on social media. What I would coach them to say is, you know, as I look at this role, maybe an, an entry level analyst in a private equity firm, I did not include the things in my background that would not that weren't relevant to this role. So a lot of this is the big old fat. It depends. It depends on what you're trying to do, what what role or career you're going for, and what your background is. And so, you know, you have to look at what are you trying to do, and then figure out how do I call the things from my background that are most applicable. You know, we're all, especially with social media, multi multi dimensional. And just because you you know just because you were an activist or a community organizer or the head of the Republican College Republicans, um, shouldn't matter. But again, we all know that, you know, people are making all kinds of decisions that we never know about. And what we're trying to do when we go on, we're trying to do when we send our resume in is we're trying to get in front of somebody. We're trying to get in front of somebody so we can show them all all of our sides and make those connections. So a resume is simply, if you think about it, it's like a cliff notes. know spark notes of our life it's a marketing document and so whether you whether you include those things or not depends on your career goals and what you're trying to do and what the job's looking for yeah i was literally i
1: I was before we went out of time i was literally going to say what if i was the head of the college republicans and then i put that but i said here's all the nonpartisan things i learned in this partisan job because you know maybe i got a whole bunch of life skills doing that that i can apply to somewhere
8: yeah and i would You know, so so, uh, you know, let's say we had a client like that, I'd say, okay, so how get prepared to discuss how being involved in nonpartisan things and being a member of the Republican Party, what would you learn from that? Who are you as a result of those activities? Try to work that maybe into your cover letter. You know, if you really want to highlight that and you don't want to hide it. Um, try to you know really try to work it into your tell me about yourself statement or you know, how you're going to position yourself best. And so you know, it, it's, it's really about messaging. It's not about covering things up. So be prepared to em- embrace everything that you've done, but also be prepared to talk about it in context and what it means for how you're going to perform in that role for that organization.
1: Julie Bauke, President and Chief Career Strategist at the Bauke Group. Julie, thanks.
3: There's also another flight to Portugal that leaves an hour and a half
1: later. <laughs> you bought from multiple airlines just to make sure you're going to make it, right? Yeah, no.
3: <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> prices are pretty good, too.
1: All right. More in-depth tomorrow.